welcome to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I want to thank you all for tuning in today. And we have a very, um, very excited about my show today. As you know, a lot of my shows center on pain. And uh, so today, I'm very happy to have on the show one of the leading researchers into pain, Professor Lorimer Mosley. And he is a clinical scientist investigating pain in humans. He joined Neura from the University of Oxford in the UK, where he was a Newfield Medical Research Fellow in the Pain Group, Department of Clinical Neurology, and Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics. And in 2011, he was also appointed Professor of Neuroscience and Chair in Physiotherapy, the Sansom Institute for Health Research at the University of South Australia. He has published hundreds of papers, three books, several book chapters, has given over 120 keynote or invited presentations at interdisciplinary meetings, and has provided education and pain science to over 5,000 medical and health professionals. He consults to governmental and industry bodies in Europe and North America on pain-related issues and was recently named the Outstanding Mid-Career Clinical Scientist Working in a Pain-Related Field by the International Association for the Study of Pain, who we had their executive director on a couple of weeks ago, and was shortlisted for the 2011 and 2012 Science Minister's Prize for Life Sciences. So, Lorimer, thank you so much for taking the time out today and coming in, or calling in, I should say, all the way from Australia. Thanks, Karen. It's a pleasure to be calling in from Australia. (laughs) Well, um, so I feel like we have a lot to talk about. And as a side note, I saw Lorimer a couple of, I guess, two months ago in um, Portland, Oregon, so a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to kind of come from that. And I also have some... um, some uh, viewer listener questions that perhaps we'll get to at the end of each segment here. So uh, let's start off with a very easy question. Um, what is your definition of pain? How do you explain, how do you, what is your definition? Okay, my definition of pain is an unpleasant feeling felt somewhere in your body that urges you to do something to protect that body And so how, now here's another easy, easy question, difficult answer. Um, how does it work? Sim, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, 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 sim, the more simple answer of how it works. So, you know, someone experiences pain in their knee. So yeah. what, what is happening? How does that signal from the knee become that sort of output of it, from the brain? Yeah, fantastic question. The, the really broad question of how does it work, uh, that, that is ridiculously complex. Right. However, if I, and, and I don't fully understand it, I don't think anyone does visually, but if I was to have a go at a simple answer to that question, uh, and if I change the question to make it more answerable, and that is how how does a bump on the knee end up with knee pain? Mm-hmm. My answer to that question would be, well, we have sensors or receptors in your knee. They are alerted to the bump. Uh, they're almost bump receptors, so they're mechanical receptors. In that situation, they might be chemical, they might be heat, but if you bump your knee, it would be mechanically sensitive receptors, let's call them bump receptors, and if that bump is big enough of a bump, it will activate danger receptors that we would call nociceptors. Mm-hmm. They send a danger message to the spinal cord, it, presuming everything's functioning normally, the spinal cord re- would respond by sending a danger message to the brain, and then the brain has a reasonably straightforward question, which is, is this a, a, actually a dangerous situation? So how dangerous is this mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. And if the brain decides this is dangerous and you need to do something to protect your knee, then your knee will hurt and your brain produces knee pain. But slightly different the old the old model, which said we have pain receptors in your knee and they detect the pain because that's dark. Right. That's a dark way of thinking about it now. It was a good way of thinking about it in the 17th century. But now we know we don't have pain receptors. We've got 
danger receptors. Then we've got buff or mechano receptors, and we've got temperature receptors and chemical receptors. But pain happens in the brain 100% of the time, no exception. Right. So all of this information goes up into the brain. The brain then decides, like you said, how dangerous is this really? And if the brain uh, feels that it's dangerous enough, it will get, it will have that output of pain. Yeah. Now, are there times when, let's say, you know, you have a, you can see there's a huge cut, there's a gash, there's, you gave an example of a guy, and I'll, I'll kind of let you sort of tell the story, but a guy with an, a hammer hanging out of his neck and uh-huh. didn't have any pain. So how could the brain not think that that's dangerous when there's a hammer sticking out of your neck? Yeah, that's, that's a great. So the story you alluded to, uh, a fellow that I met, while I was really struggling with this question, one of my neurophysiology professors when I was at college uh, said to us all, you know, if you go to the accident and emergency room, the worst injuries often have the least pain. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's that's stupid. <laughs> be true. So I went to test that theory, if you like, and uh, I had a data collection form, and I, I met a lot of interesting people on that day. But one person in particular came in, and he had a hammer stuck in his neck. Yeah, and. He was relaxed. He was cool as a cucumber. No worries. I said to him, doesn't it hurt, mate? And he said, no, it doesn't. He described it hurting a bit when the hammer went in to his neck. And he said, you know, it went past something quite hard. And I thought, well, well, that'd be a vertebra. Uh You know, this is a majorly dangerous situation. He's got blood streaming down his neck. Yeah. And he had no neck pain. Uh, And then I thought, well, it must be, you know, he must just be a bit, a few slices short of a loaf, Uh a few few gherkins short of a hamburger. Uh Uh, But, you know, he cracked a very funny joke where uh, in front of everyone in the the waiting area, he he did a reenactment of uh, Jaws uh, and said, what am I? And we all thought, you're an idiot. But he said, I'm a hammerhead shark. And that was pretty clever. And then I presumed, well, this must be shock-induced analgesia. Yeah. And we've learned, we, we learned about that at college. And, you know, if you have a big shock, then your brain doesn't register the pain. That's the theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he turned around and, uh, and hit his knee on a coffee table. And he was clearly suffering knee pain. He was hopping on the spot, swearing, saying, my knee, my knee. And he's got a hammer stuck in his neck. So it's a, it's a very perplexing observation, really, yeah. for the very reason that you touch on, Karen, and that is why would his brain think it's not dangerous? And I guess that's where I would uh, go to the other half of the definition I said uh, earlier, and that is that your brain concludes, has to conclude it's dangerous, but also has to conclude that the best thing for you is to take action. Mm-hmm. Now, for some reason, I don't know why with Mr. Hammerhead Shark, why his brain concluded at that time to not not produce neck pain. But if we take it in some way similar but contextually very different example of uh, someone at war mm-hmm. who gets their arm blown off uh, and there would be danger messages screaming into the spinal cord, danger messages screaming up the spinal cord into the brain, but the brain concludes either that it's not dangerous or, I think more importantly, that taking action to protect your arm right now would not be in your best interest. Mm-hmm. What would be in your best interest is to stay calm, maybe find your arm, pick it up and get off the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if you were on the battlefield and your arm was blown off and you just stood there screaming, my arm, my arm, somebody help me, which is what you would do if your arm was in all sorts of pain. So the sure. brain is exquisitely clever in being able to sum, sum up everything and produce a biologically advantageous experience. And what, I don't know if there's research, uh, empirical data on this, but there's very strong anecdotal data that when people with severe injuries get to hospitals, they're far less likely to be in pain mm-hmm. when uh, 
before they've been seen. But as soon as they're behind the curtain and they're in the safe hands of the doctor, then they're in agony. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's that's remarkable that one's brain is able to perform those sort of calculations completely outside of your control or awareness, mm-hmm. which are, in fact, bio- biologically advantageous. The, the force or the drive uh, to survive, I think, is... Is something that brings this, you know, the majesty to the to the brain, that sophistication of when to make things hurt. Right, and I and think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, Karen. The, the other end of that is that uh, sometimes the brain seems to make things hurt when there is no danger. True, true. And now, is is that, you know, sort of that descending inhibition and facilitation? Would that be examples of that, or is that something that's a, a little different? Uh, I think that the uh, impact of the brain, the, the brain is the general poobah here. Mm-hmm. I think that was Howie Cunningham, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it was. Poobahs at the lot. Um, the general poobah is the brain, and the, in the same way the brain will decide on experience to produce for you, mm-hmm. it will modulate the spinal cord, which is what you're referring to, Sharon, but mm-hmm. inhibition and facilitation mm-hmm. is almost like the brain correcting what it sees to be an error in the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Does that, do you get that? Have I explained that? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, <coughs> and now I have, before we go to commercial break, um, I'm going to sort of ask you the question first, and then when we come back from the break, um, I'll sort of have you answer it so that you have a second or two to kind of to think about it. But the question is, and it came from um, a physical therapist and, and researcher, Evangelos Pappas, and he's actually going to be going down to Australia. But he asked if there were any studies showing that remapping occurs with appropriate training and does it correlate to functional outcomes so again if there are any studies showing that remapping or desmudging or being more precise occurs with appropriate training and does it correlate to functional outcomes so i'll just have you sort of think on that and then when we come back from the commercial break i'll have we'll get that answer so uh just a couple minutes so stay tuned all right Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you stuck in your business or career? Trying to take your business to the next level and it keeps hitting a wall? This is Sam Lebowitz, the Conscious Consultant. I will help you get to the root cause of your abundance issues and help move you forward in your life. Call me now and let's create the future you dream of. 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. The Conscious Consultant, helping conscious people be better business people. Are you concerned about the future of your business or career? Would you like it all to just be better? Well, the way to do that is through better communication. And the best way to do that is training from the team at Improving Communications. This is Larry Sharp, host of the Ivory Tower Radio Program and director at Improving Communications. Does your office need better leadership, customer service, sales, or maybe better writing or speaking skills? Could they be better at dealing with confrontation, conflicts, and touchy subjects? All are covered here at Improving Communications. If you're in the New York City area, stop by one of our public classes or get your human resources in touch with us. The website is improvingcommunications.com. That's improvingcommunications.com. Improve your professional environment. Be more effective. Be happier and make more money. Improving Communications. That's the answer. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Talking Alternative. 
Welcome back to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy. I'm joined today by Lorimer Mosley, leading uh, researcher into pain and chair in physiology at the Sansom Institute for Health Research at the University of South Australia. So, uh, Lorimer, before the break, I sort of asked you the question of if there are any studies showing that remapping or desmudging occurs with appropriate training, and does it correlate to functional income? At fun- Why do I keep saying incomes? Outcomes. Hi. That's I, a Freudian <laughs> It must be. Um, I, well, the most important thing from Angelo is that he's coming to Australia, which is one of the better decisions that he's made. This is, I believe he's, at the, he's going to be doing some work with the University of Sydney. Oh, good for him. Well done, Sydney. A beautiful place. Yeah. Um, with regards to the question, if, I wonder if it might be helpful to give a bit of background to that question and what Angelo refers to with remapping. Mm-hmm. Here. Uh, on the backstory of that discovery really in the 90s that people with chronic pain and the first group was phantom had changes in the way that brain cells in the primary sensory cortex, uh, which is the part that's famous for the homuncular man, mm-hmm. so representation of skin, those brain cells change the way they respond to input. And this was a huge discovery by Hector Floor, Neil Dubama, Mark Lockman. And what I guess in a nutshell, what it showed is that people with uh, amputated phantom limbs showed these profound changes in primary sensory But amputees without phantom and did not. I'm sorry, could you say so, could you could you say that one more time? Just because it it got, it got a little cut off there for a moment? Sure. Uh, so the work, the original work by Heather Floor, uh-huh. Niels Burbalmer, Martin Lotz, was really on the back of animal studies, and there are many of those, but they showed in people with amputees, with family, that there were predictable and substantial changes in brain cells in primary sensory cortex. Uh-huh. They also showed that amputees without phantom limb pain appeared normal in their brain cells in primary sensory cortex. And this is in the the way these brain cells respond. It's not that they're damaged or anything, mm-hmm. they just respond differently. Mm-hmm. And that began what is a bit of a buzzword still, and that is cortical reorganisation. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when we say that, we really are talking about primary sensory cortex, but we now know, 15, 20 years later, that the way the brain works is different in many, many ways in people with chronic pain. We also know that this classic cortical reorganisation happens in other chronic pain conditions, so complex regional pain syndrome, mm-hmm. chronic back pain, temporomandibular pain, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, all sorts of chronic pain conditions. And what Angelo is referring to uh, when he talks about remapping is a, a range of treatments that target the normalization of this cortical reorganization. So it's almost re-reorganization mm-hmm. is, the, is the plan. And the, the first people to do that again were, was Herzog Flores group in Germany with amputees with phantom limb pain. And they used a training paradigm that we know really makes the primary sensory cortex work in a precise manner. Mm-hmm. And they showed that when they did this training, it was only 10 days, and these people had chronic transient limb pain. Okay. Daily training for 10 days, and they compared it to a control uh, treatment, showed that there was indeed a substantial amount of reorganization, re-reorganization in the primary sensory cortex. Mm-hmm. And there were functional, although there were symptomatic improvements, <coughs> excuse me, and some functional improvements. Mm-hmm. So that was that was published in an obscure medical journal called The Lancet. Oh yes, yes, very obscure. <coughs> yeah, and and other groups have looked at applying those principles to other conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was involved in a in a study looking at complex regional pain syndrome patients. We had a very sophisticated 
uh, treatment paradigm where we used a wine cork or a pen lid. Mm-hmm. And we showed improvements in pain and function. We also showed improvements in tactile acuity. And the reason we do that is that tactile acuity is considered almost a clinical signature mm-hmm. of how normally organised the primary sensory cortex is. And you mentioned the word carrot smudging. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that idea um, so long as people realise it, it's not really as though you've got a thumb on there and you, you've mashed these brain cells. But functionally, that's what the receptive fields of these brain cells start to overlap. And uh, if you think that this part of the brain holds one of the maps that is used by the brain to tell you about your body, mm-hmm. and it's as though this map is literally smudged. So the brain doesn't have quite the same accuracy of information about the body. Mm-hmm. So going back to Angelo's question, uh, I would say the quick answer is yes. These training or treatments that target normalisation of the brain, mm-hmm. what we might call training the brain, mm-hmm. show functional and symptomatic improvements that seem to correlate with normalisation of the brain changes. Right. And now is this sort of the also what leads into graded motor imagery? You know? Yeah, I, I don't think it is. Um, and that, that's a real question because those two get almost past uh, in conversation in the clinic and, and I guess even at some conferences. The idea of great is probably not quite sophisticated. I'm sorry, could, um, you, could, you, say, could you say that again? Yeah, graded motor imagery uh-huh. is probably not as sophisticated an idea. Okay. Um, graded motor imagery is really the result of applying what ETs uh, can do in their sleep, and that is... Uh, reducing the impact of a particular task or exercise mm-hmm. until it no longer provokes pain. Mm-hmm. So we do that with functional tasks all the time, but we were struck with a situation where people with chronic pain, and in the first people with chronic CRPS, mm-hmm. really couldn't do anything without pain. So we have a dilemma there, how do we uh, deconstruct us further than its most simple. Right, way. right. So, so we published a paper in neurology some time ago documenting closely um, the increase in pain and swelling that can be observed when you imagine Right. And then we also noticed a paper by a group in Philadelphia, uh, where they showed the people with chronic hand pain who, and they happened to be CRPS patients, uh-huh. took a long time to recognise a photograph of a hand, if that photograph, recognise it as a left or a right hand, mm-hmm. if that photograph coincided with their painful hand. So I thought that was a marvellous discovery, and, I, and yeah. I, I thought this might give us an opportunity to modify mirror therapy. Right. I've been working with mirror therapy for five or six years, really, since I first read Ramachandran's book. Mm-hmm. And I had nowhere near the results that I'd read about. And in both phantom limb pain and CRPS, mm-hmm. uh, I had at least as many people getting worse with mirror therapy as were getting better. And I think on the whole... It wasn't very exciting from a clinical perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the combination of that and this study by Schwerbel's group uh, led us really to start experimenting with using this left-right hand judgment task mm-hmm. as a training tool. And, and that's a very sensible thing to do if you take a very biological approach to graded exposure mm-hmm. because we know that if you have to recognise the body part as a left or a right limb, or now some of our more, more recent work is showing that if you have to recognise a trunk or a head as rotated to the left or the right, mm-hmm. 
and you still run motor processes, but importantly, after you've had some practice, you don't activate the primary motor cortex. And what we began to find is that when people do this left-right judgment task, they don't have an increase in their pain. They get better at the task quite quickly over a matter of a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then when we return them to imagine movements, that no longer aggravates their pain. So we had about five years of clinically-based experiments and, and very precisely documented and controlled case studies mm -hmm. until we really came along with this protocol of proto-motor imagery, which is left-right judgments, <coughs> excuse me, followed by imagined movements, then followed by mirror movements, mm -hmm. and then progressing into graded exposure. Right. And we did a couple of randomised controlled trials on that and uh, we found it to be the best thing that we had been able to do for these patients. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a patient now with CRPS. Um, it was sort of started with a, a, a knee sprain, then spread to his feet and then to his hands. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I, I use the graded motor imagery with him and yeah. he is now at... He is now 70% better than he was about five months ago. That's right. You know, so he went from not being able to wear socks or shoes to, or, or not being even able to have anything touch his knee to, uh -huh. you know, walking 20 to 30 minutes, getting out of his house. You know, he has full use of his hands again. And, That's right. And so if it's been really... It has, that has worked better for him. He had done ketamine treatments, spinal stimulators, and it was the graded motor imagery along with then starting some graded tasks that was yeah. really best for him. That's right. I think there are, <coughs> there are definitely people who, in my experience, who don't respond to graded motor imagery. Sure. And we're trying to untangle that. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that we will find that CRPS uh, really encompasses a range of different physiological mechanisms. Right. That might be able to categorise people as, well, this person will respond to GMI, greater motor imagery, this person won't. Um, but, you know, you touched on other treatments that are offered to these people. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned ketamine and spinal cord stimulators. Mm -hmm. And I think one fundamental difference with what we're trying to do with greater motor imagery or indeed with tactile discrimination training mm -hmm. is to uh, target a, a pathology that we know is there. Right. And there is, I think there's building evidence that it's, it's a contributing pathology to chronic CRPS. I'm not sure that it contributes uh, to the uh, onset of CRPS or in fact in the acute stage, but in chronic, it seems to be contributive. And what we're trying to do is not not just treat the mechanisms that seem to be producing pain, mm -hmm. but to try and solve the problem. Right, solve the, solve the puzzle. It takes a lot more time and a lot more work. We, we, I mean, in CRPS, we now say to patients that we're taking this on uh, and you need to take this on as though you've had a stroke. Mm. Not because you have, right? and the, the really good news is that your brain is not damaged, mm -hmm. but the amount of training that's required now to rehabilitate, so to return to normal, yeah. is equivalent to what we would expect for someone who had a stroke. Yeah, and, and I think that that's wonderful, uh, very good information to give to the patient so they're a little more prepared for what they have to, to get into. Sure. Um, and on that, we're going to take a quick break. Um, for another commercial, we'll be right back. So everybody stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Hi, I'm Dana. And I'm Don. We are certified, certified mediators, and I am a family and couples licensed therapist and author of Please Don't Buy Me Ice Cream. Our show, New Beginnings, is about helping you and your family recover financially and emotionally and start the beginning of your life. We'll answer your questions on divorce, family court, co-parenting, personal development, new relationships, blending families, and more. 
Dana and I will bring you to a place of empowerment and belief that even though marriages may end, families are forever. Join us every Monday starting September 10th at 10 a.m. on TalkingAlternative.com. Are you suffering from aches and pains? Has traditional medicine let you down? Are you tired of taking toxic medications? Then come to the Double Diamond Wellness Center and learn how our natural methods can help you to heal. Call us now at 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. Or find us on the web at www.doublediamondwellness.com. We look forward to serving you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, joined today by Lorimer Mosley, a leading researcher into pain. And so we've been getting all of our burning pain questions answered. Maybe that probably wasn't the best way to phrase that. Um, anyway, <laughs> so uh, I have um, an, another good, interesting question. And it's something that, you know, I wonder personally, because I've had chronic pain issues, but why does acute pain resolve in some people and go on to be chronic in others? You know, Karen, if I knew the answer... We'd be millionaires. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, that's actually a true statement. Chronic pain, as you know, Western countries, an absolute bucket load. It's equivalent to the cost of diabetes and cancer combined. Mm-hmm. So if we could work out how to identify the people who will not recover after a few episodes and end up costing our community so much money, mm-hmm. then a lot of people are interested in buying that off. However, uh, that's only half the story, I guess. Identifying them is only where we have to identify why it happens and what's got away with some progress has been made in the direction of influential studies during the 90s. Um, there were many of the ones that come to mind, like Kim Burton in the UK. Okay. And they really started to show that the differences in the acute stage between those who do and don't become chronic mm-hmm. are not associated with the tissue injury. So know that it's not your uh, the extent of the injury, the type of the injury, mm-hmm. with the exception of, you know, frank peripheral nerve injuries like amputation. Right, right. Which don't always end up in chronic pain, actually. But about 40% of the time they do. Um, but aside from that, you know, the extent, the size, um, your postcode, your age, your sex, your religion, your personality type, none of these things... Mm predict whether you'll go chronic. Mm. The most uh, robust predictors, which are still not huge, are the the patient's own predictions on how well they will recover. Mm -hmm. So the patient's expectations, expectations. yeah. Uh, Now, we don't know how that mediates an effect, and we have to be very careful with that, Karen, because it's a small step for some to say, ah, so you ended up chronic because you expected to. And that's that's not what the data shows. Right. Um, it, what the data do show is that if you expect to, you you do have a greater likelihood of ending up chronic. But we don't know why that expectation is associated with that outcome. Mm-hmm. We also know that, you, that probably the best predictor is pain in the acute phase. So... Uh, We've got a study under review at the moment that clearly shows that the people with uh, very intense pain soon after a wrist fracture are significantly more likely to develop 
complex regional pain syndrome than those with not very intense pain. Mm-hmm. Can't explain their pain by the extent of their injury or their drug regime or personality type, excuse me, anything like that. So we're trying to answer these questions, and our, our group has a couple of uh, fairly big National Health and Medical Research Council, which is a bit like your NIH okay. project, that's trying to untangle this, but we're only one of many groups that are right. doing that. Right. <coughs> so yeah. I don't know the answer to the question, and I would really like to know the answer to the sure. question. Sure. And, you know, there was an article in the New York Times magazine a couple of weeks ago about a little girl who doesn't feel pain and how, how researchers are sort of studying and trying to almost look at, I think they've got some genetic coding and looking at specific genes that, that may be attributing to the fact that she doesn't feel pain in order to, yeah. that that research may be carried over into people with chronic pain. Yeah, and that's a real interesting lead. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of the article, but mm-hmm. I have seen several people who have a genital absence of no significant function. Mm-hmm. Let me clarify that. So these people are born with a peripheral that does not contain dangerous. Right. And me, my experience, these people describe things are pretty similar to what I would describe when I'm in pain, but they've been not relevant to the state of the tissue at all. So, I'm sorry, could you say that again? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. So these people, most common cause of this is that, yeah, this is my understanding, I'm not a peripheral neurologist, but my understanding is that the most common cause of what people call an insensitivity to painful stimuli mm-hmm. is uh, an absence or a problem with danger receptors in the tissues of the body. Mm-hmm. And this is exciting for researchers who are interested in treating chronic pain yeah. by stopping nociception by stopping the danger messages sending being sent from the tissue right that's sent to the tissues to the spinal cord up to the brain yeah yeah, yeah. and that's right unless we start to consider that a vast proportion of people with chronic pain don't get substantial relief from anesthetizing the body part so right now there's a real limitation to that direction but yeah. <clears throat> my understanding of these of these Kids, and in my experience, it's only kids and young adults that I've met who have got this absence of danger receptors. Well, yeah, because if you know, if you don't know that you're in pain, and God forbid something internally happens, you're not going to make it to an older age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this—it's almost um, possible to envy this girl that was the topic of the New York Times piece, but I, I tell you. Pain is in our most reliable ally, really. It protects us very reliable. But going back to the my observation of these patients, I I hear them say things that sound a lot like pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, more dull, achy sort of descriptions. But what's critical with those uh, people is that it's not related to dangerous stimuli. They don't have any opportunity as very young people to associate an incoming barrage of nociception, mm-hmm. tissue damage. So the pain is completely nonsensical, you know, what yeah. they describe. So yeah. my description of those people would be they feel physical discomfort right. in their bodies. It's not very well located and it bears almost no relevance to the state of the tissues. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting um, population of people. Um, and uh, so I want to kind of switch gears here. I have another uh, interesting question for you, but this was from John Ware, a physical therapist at, at, uh, in New Orleans. But he was curious as to what you think about the role of spinal manipulation or thrust for the treatment of low back, pac- or low back pain. And given what the pain science and studies examining predictors of poor long-term outcomes are telling us, should PTs be moving away from coercive manual therapy techniques? 
This is obviously <laughs> for the PTs out there listening, but, you know. Yeah. That, you know, that's a great question. Yeah. And I am no expert on vertebral manipulation, thrust, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I, I guess I have some confidence talking about the neurophysiological mechanisms that are thought to be involved. Mm-hmm. And I that it's very feasible that there might be a role in acute or subacute back pain as an analgesic technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I can see no compelling argument that it will solve the uh, a peripherally based mechanical disruption that's caused no exception. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong on that, and in a sense, I almost don't care. Uh-huh. Uh, but when it comes to chronic back pain, there is a really interesting and ethically important question to ask. Uh-huh. And that is that if the mechanism of uh, any of these techniques is to reduce nociceptive input at, at the spinal level uh-huh. via a pain gate or something like that, we have to also acknowledge uh, that it has a range of neurophysiological effects, some of which are helpful, but some of which I think are unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Such as? By that, I mean, we know that a sensitized spinal cord can be maintained by ongoing peripheral input. Uh-huh. But as well as that, I think that uh, there's very compelling evidence that we need, in people with chronic pain, they need to understand their pain slightly differently to how they usually do. Well, not, well, not slightly, very differently yeah. to how they usually do understand it. And they usually do understand it as evidence that there is an ongoing nociceptive driver. So right. people were quite pain with damage. That's right. And a, any treatment that focuses on tissues of the body implies that the tissues of the body are broken. Mm. It's functional, and we have to be careful with that. And I think that there is a responsibility of anyone who's doing uh, a treatment to a particular tissue mm-hmm. to do that within a, a accurate biological framework using sound clinical reasoning mm-hmm. and, and good auditing. Right. I think I mean, a number of times that people say to me, oh, I get all my patients better with this particular technique that I do. And, you know, I'm the SIJ expert, which oh. is why everyone around the continent sends me their SIJ patients. Yeah. And I feel like saying that, you know, these patients turn up having you know, played a dodgy squash shot and they've got a sore back? I'm sure they don't say, ah, that's my SIJ. I'll go to Lorimer, the SIJ. Yeah. Um, so aside from that, that's a bit of a rant that I'm very capable of going on. But uh-huh. aside from that, uh, I think that we, yeah, we need to establish, I think in PT, but I think probably across the health professionals, we need to establish a, a deeper respect for being honest about our outcomes and auditing our outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these people say, yeah, I'll get everyone better. And I say, oh, how do you know? Oh, well, I just know. And I say, so do you, do you ring them at six months and, and get a pain measure? Mm-hmm. That's quite unusual for someone to do that mm-hmm. and we know there's a whole literature on natural regression and spontaneous recovery and the powerful effects of just walking in the door of, of a clinic sure uh, and i think we need to be honest with ourselves and and when we are we open up at, at least as many opportunities as we do uh, close i guess prejudices and, and naivety mm-hmm. yeah and, and i i agree and And on that, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back for our final segment. Yes, final segment. So um, I guess I'll ask you one more question to kind of think about before we go on the break. And this was from Erica Mello, a PT here in New York. And she was wondering um, about chronic pain in children. And and most children, you know, that we see heal fairly quickly, but there are some that tend to linger similarly to adults, and are the mechanisms the same in the pediatric brain? So, sort of have you right, mull that over. I'll put, I'll put over. on Google while you're on that track. 
I'll have you mull that one over, and we'll be right back in a few minutes, so stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in your business or career? Trying to take your business to the next level and it keeps hitting a wall? This is Sam Leibowitz, the Conscious Consultant. I will help you get to the root cause of your abundance issues and help move you forward in your life. Call me now and let's create the future you dream of. 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. The Conscious Consultant. Helping conscious people be better business people. Have you ever considered consulting a roadmap when you feel you need help getting to your destination? When the normal path seems blocked, a little help can come in handy when choosing an alternate route. Your natal chart is a map of your potentials. It addresses relationships, finance, business, health, and above all, creativity. Current planetary cycles can either support or challenge your objectives. I'm Montgomery Taylor. If you would like to explore the help of a private astrological reading, please contact me at Monty at MontyTaylor.com. That's Monty, M-O-N-T-Y, at MontyTaylor.com. Talking Alternative Radio. 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I am your host, Karen Litzy, joined today by Lorimer Mosley. So, uh, Lorimer, before we went to the break, I sort of asked you that uh, question about children in pain. And, and is the pediatric brain, are the mechanisms the same in a pediatric brain as they are in a fully formed adult brain? Yeah, I took that opportunity while we were on break to think long and hard about it. I don't know. Um... The, I think it's probably fair to say that it's more plastic, right? Mm-hmm. Although we know that we're plastic until we die. Right. Always so we're more, probably elastic would be a better term, uh, the younger we are. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I don't think it's been studied enough for us to be sure, aside from that, to be honest. I, I'm definitely no expert on kids. Yeah. Uh, I'm probably questionably an expert on anything, but I'm less of an expert on kids. What I see, I've only seen a couple of dozen, I think, and they're all CRPS cases. Yeah, yeah. And my observation and my understanding from talking to people who are experts is that uh, rehabilitation is a lot easier with kids. Mm -hmm. The the biggest barrier to successful outcomes are their parents, (laughs) is my impression. Yeah, okay. Okay. I mean, it seems to me we really need to deal with that. But I think, you know, the principles are the same. We've still got a brain that's looking out to protect you. And the kids tend to believe what you say a bit more and it might make it a bit easier and, mm-hmm. and less less established in, in their own cognitive and behavioural sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I really am not in a good place to... Yeah, yeah. It, it, is, a, it is a tricky question. But thank you. Um, so I guess we have a couple, we have about seven or eight minutes here. So, um, one, I guess one other question that I think was, it was really interesting and something that you said at the course that I found to be very interesting and it's sort of how do other sensory cues play into pain? And at the course, you sort of use this example of, of, a, a cyclist who had this, I don't know if it was knee pain or back pain, but she only felt it when she went uphill. So you had her on a bike and just got big computer uh, TV screens. And as you tilted the screens, she had the pain, but she literally wasn't going uphill. 
So yeah, I think that's a great example of what pain really is about. Uh huh. The pain is not about giving you an accurate idea of the state of the tissues of your body. Pain is about alerting to the need to do something to protect them. Mm-hmm. Now, most of our, I guess, the, the, the purpose built, not that I think it's all designed, but the, 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 the most effective mechanism of detecting these dangerous things is the nociceptive system. Mm-hmm. But if you're bringing any credible evidence that tissue might be dangerous and detecting, then it will produce pain. Right, so so it's it's not that. So in the case of this this woman, it was the the visual input she was given was enough for the brain to create that output of pain, even yeah. though it wasn't necessarily the nociceptive system. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Um, I would conclude that in her scenario, in that aspect of her rehab, where we could not get over the hump of yeah. every time we went up a hill, her pain came back. So she'd be on the trainer, and as you say, we would be flat screens by the side to give her the visual information that she's thinking, on comes her pain. Mm. And then when we were able to give her control over that and her brain became convinced, actually, this is an illusion, this is not actually dangerous, then her brain stopped producing the pain. And in one session, we went from not being able to go on an incline to going on a 7% or something like that yeah. incline, which is pretty steep if you know how to write. Yeah, and that's, um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so, I mean, and there, are, there are many examples of sensory cues, so the non-nociceptive system being critical for modulating pain. We published a study where we put a very cold piece of metal mm-hmm. on the back of uh, healthy volunteers' hands, and if we showed them a blue light, people rated it at about 2 out of 10 pain, or 3 out of 10 pain. If we just showed them a red light, we didn't say anything else. We just showed them the red light at the same time as we gave them this very cold stimulus. They rated it at 7 out of 10. Mm. That's a huge difference huge. because, and, and I would interpret that to say, well, this sensory cue, this visual cue is saying this is very hot because red means hot twice. Right. This is very hot and your tissue is about to be burnt. Make it hurt so that you pull your hand away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of a patient who had severe phantom hand pain after getting their hand caught in an industrial bread kneader. And 10 years later, he would have horrific, distressing hand pain Mm -hmm. every time he smelled hot bread. Right. And, and, you know, that, that makes perfect sense if you think of pain in a modern way. It makes no sense if you are Rene Descartes from 1600. That's right. And you think the pain has to be about nociception. Right. So, I mean, yeah, these are just great examples as as to the complexity of pain and how there's Uh so many inputs that have to be taken into consideration. I think when you're treating your patient, when you're talking to your patient, like you said, from the moment they walk in the door, they're getting all these different inputs that can really have a huge uh, impact on, on their pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I, if I can just respond to that, because yeah. this is something that I noticed the other day. I walked into a physiotherapy department in one of the hospitals that I was visiting, and there on the table was one of those models of the lumbar spine, and someone had taken it apart, and there was a vertebra, and there was an intervertebral disc lying on the table. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, what happens in the brain of someone who walks past there with back pain? Yeah who is concerned that they might have slipped their disc, which is a, a stupid phrase, but right. it's common. And then sees this model. Yeah, they're going to freak out. And I apply the principle of if there's any credible evidence that things are more dangerous and you need more protection, then it will hurt more. And if there is any credible evidence that things are less dangerous and you need less protection, then, then it will hurt less. Mm-hmm. And I think we can exploit the latter as clinicians. Yeah. And we can do a lot of things that intentionally reduce the perception of threat to body tissue. Mm-hmm. But we have to also be aware of, of the power of the other things that can unintentionally increase the perception of threat to yeah. body tissue. 
That's right. And, and uh, you know, I think, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We just have like a minute or two left. So we'll sort of end on, on that note about the pain talk. But I wanted to give you uh, quickly the opportunity to talk about uh, the idea of, I know you do these rides, uh, cyclists, so ride, rides for oh, yeah. pain. So if yeah. you want to, we have about a minute or two left here. So if you want to quickly kind of talk about talk about that and and you know where you're going with that sure. sure well one of the things that we're trying to achieve here in australia and i guess uh, in my own research group in my town of, of adelaide mm-hmm. is to increase the awareness of the problem of chronic pain mm-hmm. um, it's huge cost but also that there are a lot of exciting opportunities to prevent and rehabilitate from chronic pain so we organize a mass participation bike ride called the ride for pain mm-hmm. And one thing we, we're thinking we might do this year is include a remote ride for pain option where people can register, they get a jersey, we send it to them, and then they give some sort of evidence that they're doing the ride. Mm-hmm. That might be 100 kilometres like it would be here. It might be with friends, something like that. And we start to spread the word. Uh, I think riding captures a lot of it uh, because you can ride up hills yeah. Which you think are so daunting you won't get over them, but you can with the right training and the right support. Yeah. And while I've got it, I'd like to plug our research group's website yes. called bodyandmind.org. And I have to emphasize org. Org. Not com. Not, uh, not .com, dot .org. We do. Don't go to dot .com. No. Don't go to dot .com. Go no. to bodyandmind.org. Yes. Uh, that's our blog. We have two blog posts. Uh, week there and we try to bring cutting edge clinical pain science to the people so yes and it's on facebook or twitter or uh subscribe to the blog we think it's great it is yeah cool thanks karen hey thanks a lot for having me i love the show well done thank you and thank you so much for for coming on and um uh, everyone, stay tuned. We've got some great shows coming up for the rest of the month. Thank you, Lorimer, so much for taking the time out and calling in. And everyone, uh, thank you for listening, and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Hi, I'm Dana. And I'm Don. We We are are Certified certified Mediators. mediators. And I am a family and couples licensed therapist and author of Please Don't Buy Me Ice Cream. Our show, New Beginnings, is about helping you and your family recover financially and emotionally and start the beginning of your life. We'll answer your questions on divorce, family court, co-parenting, personal development, new relationships, blending families, and more. Dana and I will bring you to a place of empowerment and belief that even though marriages may end, families are forever. Join us every Monday starting September 10th at 10 a.m. on TalkingAlternative.com. Are you suffering from aches and pains? Has traditional medicine let you down? Are you tired of taking toxic medications? Then come to the Double Diamond Wellness Center and learn how our natural methods can help you to heal. Call us now at 212-721-8183. That's 212-721-8183. Or find us on the web at www.doublediamondwellness.com. We look forward to serving you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. This is Tony Martinetti, the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Technology, fundraising, compliance, social media. Small and medium nonprofits have needs in all these areas. My guests are expert in all these areas and more. Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern, on Talking Alternative Broadcasting. Are you fed up with talking points rhetoric? Everywhere you turn, it's left or right spin, ideology, no reality. In fact, it's ideology over intellect. 
no more. It's time for the truth. Join me, Larry Sharp, a.k.a. The Neo Sage, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 Eastern, for the Ivory Tower radio program. In the Ivory Tower, we'll discuss what's important to you, society, politics, business, and family. It's provocative talk for the realist and the skeptic who want to know what's really going on, what does it mean, and what can be done about it. So gain special access to the Ivory Tower and listen to me, Larry Sharp, your Neo Sage, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11, New York time. Go to ivorytowerradio.com for details. That's ivorytowerradio.com. The Ivory Tower is a great place to visit for both entertainment and education. Listen in, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11. It will make you smarter. TalkingAlternative.com 